Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And recently, you've been paying attention, you may have noticed that I put a shout out uh, both on this podcast and also on uh, across social media and on our forum for uh, new people from the community, from the listenership to come on and join me. And that's exactly what happened. So joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 63, hang on. I, do, I was going to get you to say it to me as well, but I'm going to try it. Joe Tikaz. That's correct. Yes, you got it absolutely right. You see, I wonder uh, if that's like, it was, do you think that's how they say it in Poland, where the name originates? Or do, is, 
is that the Americanized kind of version of it? My understanding is the original name was actually Weaver, and somehow through his, history, <laughs> it got changed to Tikaz, which I don't know. That seems to complicate things further. But uh, as far as I know, that is the pronunciation. That's fantastic. So my guess was it would be like the the my this is my my incorrect guess was that the TK would be like a ch sound, and the CZ would be a a t a tz sound. So I was going <laughs> for I was going for chats, which would be appropriate. But uh, but no, it's Tikaz. Yes. Okay, and you say there's. You told me there's a book been written about the etymology of this name. Is that right? I yeah, that's actually correct. The name is in fact one of the rarest in all of the world. So wow. I think only about 150 to 200 people had the last name. So uh, there is a book about it called the Book of Tikas. That's fantastic. Is there like a philosophy that goes with it and a, a spiritual learning or anything, or is it just purely a name? I'm not sure. I'd have to read the book. I'd never read it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, and the reason uh, when I when I put the shout out to to listeners uh, saying that I wanted to, you know, expand the the people we had on, um, I think the the main reason that you've you've come on first, if anything, you jumped the queue slightly because there were there were a few people who got in before you, but I think it was your overall wild level of enthusiasm. Which uh, which swung it because I think you you messaged me in three or four different places and I was like well this guy is <laughs> this guy is definitely keen um, so I'm assuming then that uh, you listen you listen to sound of play and you must be you you've been bursting to join in basically you you've got a love of video game music that you want to share that's 100 percent correct I actually was a uh, broadcaster on my own radio show for a long time uh, uh, it's called uh, Gamer Joe Radio Show and it did a lot of the things that Sound of Play does now. So that got me so interested in doing Sound of Play because I no longer run that show oh, that okay. uh, I knew I had to be a part of it somehow. So once I heard you were looking for people, I was uh, beyond excited and uh, tried to reach you any possible way. Fabulous. Gamer Joe Radio. Well, I missed that. Uh, so so how, how was that broadcast and uh, when, when did that run from and to? Yeah, it ran for about four years on a uh, website called 8bitx.com. Uh-huh. They they um they play a lot of remixes and things like that and that's kind of where we had our falling out is uh sound of play i know you say a lot that you want to pay respect to the composers and their names um whereas uh, on this particular site they were more about the individuals doing the covers and not so much the composers that actually did the original pieces yeah uh, okay. and uh, we kind of had a little bit of a headbutt there oh okay yeah it's a, it's a tricky one because obviously uh you know the remix uh is a, is a or, or the cover is is a hugely you know they can be really interesting and they can be very skillfully done, but I think if it if it is a remix or a cover, you still surely have to uh, have to give due credit to the person who composed the original tune because without them there is no remix, there is no cover version. Um, that's how I see it anyway. Uh, but no, that's really cool. So uh, welcome to Sound of Play, and you brought us uh, you've brought us five selections, and the first of which we opened the show with, and that's from uh, Zenogears, Yasunori Mitsuda, and the treasure which cannot be stolen. So is that pick uh, a fav- favorite game, a favorite composer, or a combination of the two? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, Xenogears is word of warning, probably uh, one of my favorite games and soundtracks of all time. Right. Uh, it's a, of course, a JRPG uh, at its roots, but its story is uh, is more blended with sci-fi drama, and uh, it even gets into religion and things like that. It deals with a lot of heavier themes that a lot of JRPGs kind of don't necessarily delve into. 
Uh, it even goes into things like psychological disorders, mm. and uh, it doesn't shy away from that kind of stuff. Uh, so when you have a game that that's hard that's hard hitting like that, uh, you need a soundtrack that's also uh, can deliver on that. And uh, I can tell you, um, Yasunori Mitsuda is a fantastic composer, as I'm sure you know and have featured on this show many times. Yeah. Um, I think this is his masterwork. I know you can make an argument for Chrono Trigger or Chrono Cross, for that matter. Mm-hmm. But uh, and those are exceptional soundtracks. But uh, Xenogears uh, kind of spans the globe in terms of uh, track selection. I love its uh, cultural diversity, and uh, that track "Treasure Which Cannot Be Stolen" uh, kind of shows you the raw emotion in Xenogears. Uh, there's a song for almost every feeling on that soundtrack, and uh, it's just a beautiful work of art across the board. And uh, one of the greatest game composers of all time. Yeah, and he's still got uh, he's got stuff in the works. Um, Valkyria: Asia Revolution is uh, is going to be one of his, and Edge of Eternity, both coming out next year. Um, I don't think I realized he did the music for the original Mario Party as well. Um, obviously, I, believe with, he, I don't know if it was the whole soundtrack or if it just a few select contributions. Tracks, but, but, yeah. Y- yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you know this, um, but uh, we didn't get Xenogears over here. Uh, it was never released in Europe um, at the time. I think it was the uh, the thought of translating it into multiple languages. Um, obviously, although you know, sometimes we get games that are. Have, just been translated into English for US release. Normally, there's a consideration to French, Spanish, Italian, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, I think that was probably what the, this this was a fairly common scenario back in the '90s. That uh, even if a game came to the US, it wouldn't be in any way guaranteed that it would come to uh, the UK, and that was true of Chrono Cross as well. So, obviously, there are ways of playing it um, legally and illegally: chipped PlayStation's pirate copies, emulation, so on and so forth. <laughs> Um, and obviously we've had kind of spiritual successes as well now. Um, but the thing I remember reading about Xenogears is, and the thing, I think the thing that um, sort of makes it a slightly divisive choice and something that people either love or they got pushed away is disc two is pretty much um, was, was kind of rushed. And so it becomes, it's this sort of, it, it's more of an interactive story, the second half than the, than the, yeah, RPG. the, the story behind that is, and I don't know, how true it actually is but mm. apparently they ran out of budget for the game yeah uh and kind of had to cram it down into these little story sections so they weren't actually able to flesh out the entire story uh yeah. the way they would have normally um and it kind of gimped the second disc it made it uh yeah. told through black screens and text versus actually visiting the places and doing the things but you were so you were one of those who was obviously so fully invested by the time you got to that that rather fe- rather than feeling pushed away or let down you just you you were engaged enough in the story to kind of go with it. Yeah, the way I'm looking at it is it's one of the few games I put a hundred hours into. I don't know yeah. if you've ever crossed the hundred hour mark in an RPG or any game for that matter before, but uh, it's happened to me on a few occasions and yeah. Xenogears one of those. So I was so invested at that point and just so connected to the story, the world, and the characters that uh, I wasn't too bothered by that storytelling aspect of the second disc. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, so we've got uh, we've got some excellent tracks coming up. That was a lovely way to open the show. We've also got some more RPG stuff, but uh, you've brought, brought us a, an eclectic mix, as we like to have. Uh, but continuing on the sort of Japanese RPG theme, uh, first request of this sound of play is from the forum, Genuine Brag. And uh, Genuine Brag asks for, well, let's hear Genuine Brag. One of my favorites from the Shin Megami Tensei series. 
which is known for having such excellent music. I could have chosen any number of things. It's from one of the more obscure entries, Shin Megami Tensei Devil Summoner 2, Raido Kuzunoa versus King Abaddon, which has to win some longest title award and is the only non-Persona game in the series I've managed to finish. It's a very stylish action RPG with frequent random encounters that might have become annoying if they weren't accompanied by the awesome New Battle by Shoji Meguro. <laughs> New battle. Uh, it is the battle theme, as I understand it. And I imagine I've not played any of the Devil Summoner games uh, that you do a lot of battling. Um, so obviously we've heard uh, of your love for Xenogears, Joe. Uh, have you dabbled in the SMT series? I have not, unfortunately, and I've heard many fantastic things about it. I have uh, one game on my shelf right now. It's called Digital Devil Saga, I believe. Oh, yes. Yes. On the PlayStation 2, yes. and I've been meaning forever to try it out, but I just haven't gotten to it, you know, family yeah. and such, and Absolutely. Uh, lack of time, which makes it unfortunate that my favorite genre is JRPG, because time is such a commodity nowadays. Um, incompatible with the lack of time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, I've always been curious in it, and the thing with the Persona series is another one which really kills me that I want to play, so yeah. I, I went ahead and uh, listened to the 
Kane and Rince on Persona 3, which kind of, I know it would spoil the game, but I was thinking to myself, yeah. I'll never, I'll never actually get to the game probably, so... Well, I think that's cool. Yeah, I mean, we 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 have a we have different kinds of listeners. We have those who listen to every show, regardless. We have some who only listen to the shows about games they have played, some about games that they know that they like, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but I certainly m- my experience is because uh, I you know I listen to some of the ones of the games that I haven't played yet, the ones that I'm not on, and so they get spoiled. But in my experience, it doesn't really spoil them, and particularly with something like Persona Three, um, it's more as i understand it it's a game i've not played um it's more about the hundreds of story beats that go along the way rather than you know some grand resolution and obviously even when we talk about a game for two hours uh you're you're not going to be describing you know many of those actual you know instances it's more about summing up the way that the game made you feel so i don't think that listening to uh yeah the cane and rinse on on persona three or four would uh would would necessarily have to put you off i'm still kind of hoping that um because i know that uh our josh who hosted that podcast and who's our the biggest persona fan on the cane and rinse team uh swears by the fez edition which is the ps2 game which you can download on ps3 but i'm kind of hoping that with this current run of ps3 uh oh, sorry ps2 games coming to ps4 uh in slightly enhanced form uh, maybe, yeah. Maybe the popularity of Persona Three will see Fez get a an upscaled, um, you know, high 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 res release with uh, with trophies and so on and so forth. That would be that's actually nice. my exact hope for Persona Three at this point. If I'm yeah. going to play it, I'm waiting, you know, so I can get the trophies and all that sort of thing. Persona yeah. Four, uh, Persona Four is probably less likely because they did the golden release on Vita, yeah. but but uh, yeah, that would be great if they did that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's from 2008, and uh, this is going back to 20 years before that. Uh, and I don't know your age, Joe, but I'm going to assume this is from your childhood. Uh, is that fair? Well, I was born in 1984, so if you want to do the math, it makes me about 32 yeah. years old today. So. Oh, okay. And yeah, uh, so yes, you were you were a mere whippersnapper when, when uh, Maniac Mansion hit the NES uh, in I think it was actually because oh, I've got the year of releases 1988 but I think that was the initial release but the the NES version would have been 1990 or thereabouts I think. So, um, but even then you'd have been quite young to play a, a point-and-click adventure so did you come by at the time at six years old or or did you come to it later I probably came to it a little bit later because I started we started on a regular Nintendo in my household and I was probably about nine years old at that point um, and Maniac Mansion is one a friend happened to have, and it's such a strange game. Mm. Uh, of course, George Sanger is maybe my favorite composer ever. So, oh, really? Okay. Um, you know, I've done interviews with him in the past, and we've talked a lot. But uh, this track we're going to play, the uh, Edison Tentacle theme, mm. was, was also written with David Warhol. Yeah. And it's a really maddening soundscape of orchestrated nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best way I can describe it. It's really zany. Uh, it's very technical in places. Uh, I have such an appreciation for songs like this because I really feel like game music in general encompasses many different genres and many different feelings and emotions that, you know, sometimes we pick metal or we pick uh, rock, something like that. But I think video game music seems to put all of those things. It has every genre. And uh, this is a good example of that. Um I know uh, a lot of people with Maniac Mansion prefer the PC version, 
But mm. the PC version doesn't have the soundtrack, which was one of my no. favorite parts of the game. Yeah. Um, so that's why I always kind of lean towards the NES version. Um, and uh, so uh, I have a lot of respect for this soundtrack in general. Uh, the game is wild. It's crazy. It's actually censored a bit on the mm. NES. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, certain mm. words and things were taken out of it. Uh, Nintendo was very much against the word kill. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is kind of ironic because, you know, you kill things constantly in Nintendo games. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they had their censorship views and uh, a lot was changed in Maniac Mansion. There are articles out there if you're interested in that kind of thing. Yes, well, we definitely are. It's the, exactly that sort of minutia which we uh, which we embrace on uh, on Kane and Rince. Um Yeah, so this is from uh, the version of Maniac Mansion that was uh, ported to the NES by uh, Real Time Associates, released by Jalico. And uh, yeah, let's hear it. Joe, I am, well, we kind of know, uh, as is often the case with, with uh, Kane and Rince uh, crew members and community members, uh, those who hail from the USA, the Nintendo Entertainment System was their, their entry point into the wonderful world of video gaming. Um, was, that, was that entirely the case for you? Did you also make it to the arcades as a youth or, or did you have a, like a dad's PC or something as well? Or was it pure NES joy? You know, actually, uh, I grew up in a household where our first console was the NES. Yeah. And um, I, I actually had a very, uh, my, my father was an alcoholic. So 
Um, a lot of my time was spent escaping uh, from some of that in video games. Mm. So my first game, like probably a lot of people's, was the original Super Mario Brothers with the the Duck Hunt combo pack. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, that kind of changed my life forever right off the bat there. I knew that I had to be involved in games the rest of my life. I just mm. loved the, the combination of music and gameplay and interactivity. It was unlike other things. I thought it was so much more advanced than watching a movie or something on TV. Mm. Um, and from that point on, I went Super Nintendo. I went from Super Nintendo to PlayStation and, you know, on and on and on, even today to PlayStation 4. Um, and the arcade was a part of my life, too, in the 90s. Uh, our mall actually had an arcade where uh, fighting games were huge in the 90s, as you've talked about on many of your shows. Mm-hmm. And I would spend many a weekend, almost every weekend, uh, at the arcade playing a lot of Mortal Kombat, Killer Instinct, and yeah. that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you, with with singing from the same hymn sheet. Obviously, my childhood was uh, was uh, some years before yours, but uh, but yes, the uh, the immediate falling in love with the sort of the combo factor that video games provided of of multiple art forms is something that's still uh, as much as I you know I love music and I love film and and all that. The the video games is is the one where everything comes together for me, and uh, and yeah, I also needed to escape from an alcoholic father and various <laughs> other things. So um, yeah, I think uh, I've often I've often noted that um, while there are people uh, hardcore gamers uh, around who had you know stable and uh, and kind of um, traditionally uh, safe and normal quotes upbringings uh, there does seem to be a correlation between those who perhaps had uh, at least some emotional uh, trauma uh, you know not i'm not saying anyone ever fully escapes that sort of thing but um it does it did it did seem to be there for for those of us who who wanted an escape um but i think i like to think that even without that uh, i would have fallen in love with with the medium anyway because mm. of all the joy that it brings but perhaps the reason that it's so special to me um, is is partly yeah because of uh, you know external situations and things like that and and what it offered. Yeah, and I know you've talked many times on your show about um, suffering from anxiety and depression, and I mm. suffered from the same things for mm. ten years. So uh, yeah. maybe there is a correlation there that us anxiety yeah. sufferers tend to love our video games. So. Yeah, there was an article. I think we I think we may have put it on our Facebook page this week. Uh, uh, certainly something was knocking around that i mean it's something that's been explored a lot and it makes sense but it's about you know it's about taking control of situations and things like that um uh which you don't know as an as a you know high functioning anxiety sufferer you don't necessarily feel that you're doing from day to day so a game is something that lets you feel like you've got some some level of control over things that are much bigger than you <laughs> plus pretty explosions pretty music uh you know uh dopamine uh injections and and all that good stuff so, uh, yeah it's uh it's more yeah i mean definitely anyone who listens to sound of play anyone who's follows kane and rinse i think video games have to be a bit more than just a what you just call a hobby because we go you know we go so so big and so deep on them um but there's definitely a community of people out there who who want that who seek that lovely stuff now next up and i haven't warned editor jay about this yet but i I reckon he's got the skills um this is going to be a two for a two for one because we had two requests uh for music from the same game and they're both very short uh as the music from super mario rpg tended to be so this is this was subtitled legend of the seven stars in the usa but not elsewhere 
Um, in fact, the game again didn't come out in the EU until the Wii U, Wii, sorry, first the Wii and then the Wii U Virtual Console version. So we can play it over here now, but until then it was, it was emulation. Um, but the soundtrack is by the amazing, wonderful Yoko Shimomura, who I believe uh, is actually on tour with an orchestra at the moment. I noticed uh, there was an adver- adver- uh, advertisement for a gig, a concert in London, I think it was, uh, with, uh, with her and um, uh, a symphony orchestra doing music from mainly from Kingdom Hearts. But uh, regular listeners and fans will know that Yoko Shimomura is mainly responsible for uh, virtually all of the music in the original Street Fighter 2 and many, many others. She's uh, an absolute genius and apparently a wonderful woman as well. So uh, we're going to hear these two segue together. So this is a double request, starting with Ghost Strikes, who says this game soundtrack is still to this day one that remains stuck in my brain. Every song contributes to the feeling on going on an epic journey across the Mushroom Kingdom and beyond. This is the first Mario game that made me feel that way, and while the RPG gameplay is spot on, the music certainly contributes dearly to my enjoyment of this title. It was hard to choose a single song from this soundtrack, but I settled on this one, Let's Go Down the Wine River. Nintendo didn't uh, censor the wine out of that, interestingly. Uh, (laughs) You hear this song on a minigame trying to gather coins... While falling on river rapids, the song is short but awesome and captures everything Super Mario RPG is about. And also from R Cheese, with a Z, uh, I would have assumed at this point someone would have brought up the famous forest maze theme from the game Super Mario RPG. This, uh, the proper title is actually Beware the Forest Mushrooms by composer Yoko Shimomura, and it is a jovial fun song. Only discovered, that I only discovered after hearing YouTubers use it as background music when reviewing certain Mario games. In fact, you can find so many different renditions of the song on YouTube, either by chiptune artists or people actually playing it using an instrument. I actually did buy Super Mario RPG when I was 14. However, it took me a full 14 years to finally beat that game. I remember I started playing it shortly after I bought it from a Funko land, back when those were around, and I decided that when I was, when I was around 28 that I would finally complete it. Mission accomplished.
So that was a medley of Let's Go Down the Wine River and Beware the Forest's Mushrooms by the peerless Yoko Shimomura for Square's uh, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Super Mario RPG. Joe, is that one that you played back in the day as a youth on the SNES or uh. SNES? I get told, I think it's uh, Americans prefer SNES. SNES. Yeah, SNES sounds good to me. Much to my miscredit, I never played this one. Uh, I was very much more into the more serious style yeah. JRPGs. Mm. And I did like my Mario, but for whatever reason, I think the game was really expensive when it came out. I think it was like an $80 game yeah. here in North America. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't obviously didn't have much money back then. They kind of had to pick and choose the games that I would get to play. And this one passed me by. And then years later, there were emulation issues where they couldn't get the game working right. So I never yeah. even played it that way. And it's very expensive to get a carp, you know, through mm. uh, various websites or whatever you tried that. And now I think you mentioned it's on virtual console, so it I is. may have to finally play it like that. Yeah, yeah. I gather it's, um, it, as RPGs go, it's quite a short one. But yes, I think it was on quite a hefty cartridge, uh, like 16 or maybe even 24 megabit cart or something. So I think it was quite expensive. And again, that plus the, the translation issues meant that it didn't come out in uh, in Europe until the the virtual console versions so um but yes uh it's it's one that i'd, I'd like us to cover on the main pain and rinse podcast someday uh, as an interesting mashup between if nothing else an interesting mashup between square and nintendo um around the time that when square were absolutely knocking it out of the park with final fantasy 6 or 3 as it was known in america back then um but not anymore thankfully uh and uh the secret of mana which is one of my all-time favorite video games we have uh, from you, Joe, now your next pick. It's another RPG. That's okay. There's a lot of uh, RPG music to pick from. Now, this is a series, East, uh, that we have been requested to cover on more than one occasion. Um, but I've had to, you know, let, let the fans of the series down gently. We don't have a single East player among the Kane and Rince team. So it would have to be a, a panel made up entirely of people who, uh, who, who've not you know, not made a Kane Rinse podcast before, which wouldn't necessarily work. So they are on the list. They're on our big, long list of 1,000, several hundred games. Uh, so it's not impossible. But uh, this is now a long-running and complex series of quite uh, niche and hardcore JRPG, should we say. So, um, yeah, what's your what's your love of East about and, and uh, how much of this epic series have you, have you enjoyed? Oh, well, first of all, it's interesting you're covering Zelda right now on uh, yeah. Kane and Ritz. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually think the East series has been overall more consistent than Zelda. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as you will find out as you get into the later Zeldas, they tend to get a little more gimmicky. They kind of change what they originally made them so good. Uh, but East has always kind of stuck to its fan base uh, and its commercial appeal and size. Um, and it's never really changed from what it is. Uh, mm. Falcom has been around for a very long time, and there's a reason. I think there's a reason for that. Um, it, sa it says something for a smaller budget, smaller fan base, um, being able to still succeed in a world that's so full of uh, overbloated and often overhyped and expensive games. Uh, the E series uh, does not get marketed to us constantly, and it does not have the highest production values. But I, I just find the core gameplay is really fun, mm. and uh, in a world sometimes perhaps. Uh, we lose focus on on that kind of stuff in, in terms of uh, caring more about story and style over gameplay. Yeah. Uh, Ease does a nice job of reminding me 
uh, that games don't have to be these huge events so much, and they can just be simple and fun. And uh, as for Falcom's sound team, uh, they always deliver. I don't know if you're familiar with these soundtracks at all. No. Um, you usually will know a song uh, when you hear it. There's a, always kind of a metal influence to their tracks, and uh, the melodies are always soaring and just uh, beautiful. Um, it's interesting with Falcom Sound Team, they don't actually uh, go by individual names. They, mm. just, they just go as a team, and we don't really get to know who the real composers behind it are. No. Yeah, yeah I did a bit of digging, and, and some names pop up, but you wouldn't know which of uh, at least yeah, four different people were actually responsible for, for the track that you've chosen, which is called Desert of Despair. This is from East 7. Now, is East 7 actually the seventh game in a series, or is this just the, the one that happened to be called 7 and they were already, there'd already been like 15 spin-offs and so on and so forth? <laughs> I believe there are remakes in this series, but it's not necessarily the case that um, there were all these spin-offs and such. It's actually pretty much in line with probably the seventh one. Uh, mostly what has happened is they've remade certain ones. I think this is, uh, yeah, this is another series where um, very few uh, entries from the series have made it over to Europe. So I think that's part of the reason that, uh, we, you know, we're, we, though we have a couple of US contributors, um, you need to get that, Joe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all right. One second. Hello. Terribly sorry. No, that's all right. Everything okay? <laughs> the uh, plumbing broke oh. next door. Oh, right. And uh, the girl next door needed to use my bathroom. <laughs> oh, bless. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, yeah, so although this particular uh, installment of the series did come out in Europe uh, on the PSP, this was PSP game. Um, PSP, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, I, I think overall, I think not every... Uh, Every installment in the East series has made it over here, and perhaps it was one of those that didn't come here early on, so people didn't feel so engaged. I'm sure it has a, a like a, you know a hardcore cult niche following, but um, uh, which is illustrated by those requests we get to uh, to cover it on the podcast. But um, yeah, I think um, mechanically it can be quite hard to go back to early uh, JRPGs now, um, which is the endless problem, and even the discussion we've had multiple times about covering Final Fantasy and how and how we should do it and, and what. Well, those aren't necessarily so bad because they're kind of turn-based and that's easy enough. But the original yeah. book one and two of Ease, it was actually going up to the enemy and just bumping and bumping and bumping into him oh, until okay. he was dead. Ah, like, yeah. Maybe sort you of like real that time more. Action. I don't know what you're into. Well, yeah, it depends. It depends very much on uh, how those mechanics feel. I mean, as I say, I still love Secret of Mana, which was a, uh, a non-turn-based one with actual in-the-field action. But, uh, but that was already a 16-bit game. I'm, I'm wondering about going back what uh, yeah i kind of i don't actually know what year east uh east started uh it was in the 80s wasn't it it was i want to say it was probably later in the 80s maybe 87 88 somewhere around yeah there. yeah it, it was like a you know japanese computers and and early -bit yep. consoles and stuff like that yeah. turbo graphics yeah yeah so i mean well uh is it uh, are there more installments planned is it still coming are there still east games on the way yeah, there's actually Ease 8 was announced for the PlayStation 4 and the Vita, I believe, as well. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's still going. Fantastic. Uh, 
All right. So, uh, so yeah, this particular track, Desert of Despair, um, any particular reason for this one? It's just awesome. That's really the only thing I can say. That's, uh, it's, that's a it's, good reason. It's kind of got a metal feel to it. Um, and just the melodies are fantastic. All right. Well, let's hear it, Desert of Despair.
So that is uh, credited to, as Joe said, Falcom Sound Team, JDK. I don't know what the JDK means. Me either. That was confusing. Yeah. No No idea. Um, some, some composers there include Hayato Sonoda, Takahiro Unisuga, Saki Momiyama, and Masanori Asaki. Uh, one or more of those may have had something to do with that track, but I can't be sure. If anyone knows those composers, <laughs> do let us know. And uh, next up, uh, something, it's not an RPG and it's not from Japan. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's Tomb Raider. Yeah. Uh, this is requested by Wishy Washy from the forum. As we always say, don't forget to come over to canarince.com slash forum and uh, make your requests on the Sound of Play thread. We'll continue to include them in each regular Sound of Play podcast. Wishy Washy says, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Tomb Raider, I should really request Nathan McCree's Tomb Raider 1 theme. But since that has already been featured on Sound of Play, I will instead gladly nominate the theme from my favourite of the franchise, Tomb Raider 3. Nathan's simple, elegant and evocative musical pieces and stingers are woven so well into this massively sprawling third-person adventure, perhaps too massive for some, I wouldn't have enjoyed the game quite as much without them. Not only did the music captivate me, but also the story. It loosely tacked itself onto the real historical exploits of Charles Darwin, with a bit of gaming poetic licence, of course. No finches and iguanas here, just a few raptors and a T-Rex. I do find it quite sad that this series' iconic theme music has been abandoned by the IP holders in favour of thoroughly competent but largely forgettable orchestral compositions. Much like the majority of modern Hollywood franchises whose insipid scores pour off the Hans Zimmer Music Factory production line with disheartening regularity. Even the great Alan Silvestri thought the theme's melody strong enough to include it in the second Tomb Raider movie's main titles. Though Mr Silvestri has recently been Nathan McCreed himself with his excellent Captain America First Avenger theme all but gone in the more recent films. In closing, I would like to mention that Nathan McCree is debuting a suite at this December's Tomb Raider 20th anniversary concert in London. I've got my ticket. Happy listening.
Tomb Raider 3, the theme, uh, which uh, we featured, yes, as uh, Wishy Washy, the requester of that one, said way, way back, possibly in the very earliest Sound of Play, certainly one of the earliest ones, and that was my pick. Uh, because I love that piece of music um, and I'm less familiar with that Tomb Raider 3 version uh, because I think I did play that game for about half an hour. <laughs> the Tomb Raider the Tomb Raider series, the the original run as it was, had already kind of um it it was it was a, a very good example of a of a franchise in an Assassin's Creed style many years later becoming annualized very quickly and quite quickly sort of failing to spark the same excitement by coming out on a yearly basis uh, among some I'm sure plenty of people were were riveted and 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 the reviews were still strong but for me uh, of the original run Tomb Raider the first was was the only one that that really grabbed me you're a Tomb Raider kind of guy Joe you have fond memories of that uh, uh, definitely yeah I um I'm PlayStation through and through I've been on every PlayStation platform uh I don't actually own any Xbox platforms, so uh, my history with PlayStation is long, and Tomb Raider, of course, started there. I believe it was 96, 97, somewhere where the first Tomb yeah, Raider Yeah, but came I'm going to have to pick a bone with you there, actually. The Saturn, <laughs> the Saturn version was the lead format for the, uh, for the very first Tomb Raider, and it was actually it had a month window exclusivity. Was so, it really? Huh? Yeah, it was, yeah. But, uh, but that was, that was it, when they started development, I think um, the Toby Guard and the core design team didn't know that uh, the PlayStation was, was going to uh, kind of wipe the floor commercially with the Saturn. So from, you're absolutely right, from, be, from, from the second game on, um, it, it was absolutely synonymous with PlayStation, um, and the PS1 version of the first game was a slightly enhanced uh, port. It should be said as well. And uh, Angel of Darkness, which was the much maligned one that arguably killed the franchise for a while, that was PS2 only, wasn't it? Interesting. I, I had no idea that it was on the Saturn first, so I'm it glad was. I uh, was able to learn something today. I like to be a, like a human uh, Mythbusters machine when it comes to gaming. Um, yeah, well, you know, like I said, the series was so synonymous with PlayStation for so long. Yeah. You, people don't really realize that. And also the Saturn wasn't doing very well. Um, no, that's so, it. So maybe perhaps people just didn't notice. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, largely the case. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Saturn magazines were using it as a kind of tentpole. You know, they were saying, look, we've got Tomb Raider first. Uh, but then, yeah, li- <laughs> literally a month later, um, uh, another version came out with uh, slightly better reflection effects and things like that so yeah it didn't last long but uh there we go uh sticking to the west but now actually a uk uh, another uk developer i should say um and this is a game that was uh, given quite a lot of uh, publicity by nintendo because they published it early on in the life of the n64 uh, you can now mercifully play it on another format if you do have an xbox an xbox one because it's part of rare replay uh, and it's the mighty blast core. So uh, if as you pick the credits theme, Joe, this must mean that you have fond memories of completing this notoriously challenging game. <laughs> yeah, actually, I used to play this game almost uh, obsessively. Uh, now, Graham Norgate, uh, who is the composer on this particular game, uh, has quite a resume. I mean, he's worked on so mm. many projects. Um, maybe he's not as recognizable as Kirkhope, at least here in North America, but he was yeah. a big part of of the N64 era, uh, GoldenEye, yeah. Diddy Kong Racing. He was a part of all of those games. Uh, and I believe he still works today. Um, so it just goes to uh, show that uh, so often composers and many of the work on uh, game music uh, doesn't get recognized as much. Uh, you know, people know Kirk Hope kind of, and you don't really hear Norgate so much, at least where yeah, I come true. from. 
Um, and Blast Corp, which was kind of a fun arcade style destroy em up, I would describe it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, had a, a really great soundtrack, and it was a really fun game to play. Yeah. Did you do everything, get every medal? Because that was, that was a tough challenge. I did back then, but I've never, I haven't done it yet on the Rare Replay. Okay, yeah. So uh, almost worth, I'd say, I mean, now the Xbox One S is out. It's a lovely console, and uh, I, I, would, I would recommend almost buying one just so you could, you could have Rare Replay. It's, like, it's, a, it's probably one of the top exclusives on the machine. Yeah. Our, our, our Darren Gargett, uh, who you will have heard on Kane and Rince, who actually worked at Rare for a bit um, in the early 2000s, he uh, immediately dived back in uh, when Rare Replay came out. Obviously, you can imagine he was giddy with excitement. He ended up working at Rare because he was a massive Rare fan. Um, then he got to work on some of the games, including Grab by the Ghoulies and Saber Wolf on the GBA. Um, but he remained a massive fan. And uh, obviously, we always have him on every time we cover a Rare game. We haven't done Blast Core yet, but we could do. Uh, but as soon as he got Rare Replay, he went straight back to Blast Core and did it all over again. Uh, on the uh, on the very nice emulation that they included in that in that ridiculously good value for money package, so he will have heard this the uh, the end credits theme by Graham Norgate.
Yeah, uh, I've only ever got a little way into Blastcore. Um, if we ever cover it for the show, I might use that as the excuse to to uh, give it a proper go. Um, because, it, yeah, it, it was a tough game then, it's a tough game now. But um, but I think it's a game that people always say, why have, why isn't, why have they or somebody else never made anything else quite like it? There's never really been another pure trash em, smash em, explode em up in vehicles um it's like a one-off really yeah you can only assume that the reason there was never another blast core is because it must not have done commercially well but i don't have those numbers in front of me um, i don't know but, i don't know it, but, it seems like it's fondly remembered yeah you would think so but sometimes things are fondly remembered and they don't necessarily always sell well you know yeah. uh, the case recently they make another mirror's edge and uh it doesn't sell well again so no true enough uh <laughs> No, didn't even have the the strong reviews supporting it this time. Um, but yeah, Blast Core was around when um, you know in the in the early days of the N sixty four, and and I remember it reviewed well, but not as spectacularly well as obviously things like Super Mario sixty four. So perhaps it, it existed in their in their shadow a little bit, and then Goldeneye came along, and yeah, so. All right, uh, our penultimate track for this sound of play is another request, and this is from something right bang up to date. Uh, a roguelike uh, dungeon crawlery type of affair, I believe. Uh, it's on my wish list. I haven't played it yet. It's called Darkest Dungeon. I can't believe there's never been a game called that before. Uh, it's, it's, it still amazes me sometimes. You know, I've been following games, playing games since the uh, 70s, and sometimes they'll get, a game will come out and you'll go, is that really the first time a game's been called that? Like Destiny or something like that. You would have thought in me. the history of games, one guy would have said, Darkest exactly. Dungeon is our game. <laughs> Maybe there's an indie title or something, you know, but um, yeah. And obviously some games have come out with uh, some, some, some titles have been reused, such as Star Fox and things like that, but uh, only once the copyright has expired. Anyway, Andrew Brown, a friend of the show, sometime guest, uh, says, Darkest Dungeon cast the player as the inheritor of an estate overrun by eldritch terrors and abominations, the results of their deceased relatives meddling with the occult powers buried beneath the mansion. Ostensibly charging the player with righting the wrongs performed by their ancestor, they are ultimately no saint himself, instead sending a motley assortment of heroes into one of five procedurally generated dungeons in a futile attempt to drive back the horror. It's economically impossible to be a benevolent boss. The player must pick and choose who to empower to accomplish their ends, using other heroes as fodder to earn profit that furthers the bigger picture until they are broken, turned away from the estate, a shell of who they once were, maimed, diseased, poverty-stricken, and possibly insane. All of this is accompanied by Stuart Chatwood's haunting and gothic soundtrack, pounding drums and booming horns, underscoring the doom that pursues the player's heroes even in the easiest of expeditions into the darkest dungeon. But it's not all ominous and violent music. In those brief moments of peace, the soundtrack is much more soothing while still carrying an air of menace. One such time is when the party makes camp within the dungeon itself on longer expeditions. The track is titled A Brief Respite, and that's exactly what it is, a chance to recover health and morale using an assortment of abilities unique to each hero class, a moment vital to success in the dogged long dungeons where a single misstep or bad roll of the random number generation can doom the entire party to death or insanity. Much like the piano pieces that accompany the save rooms in Resident Evil, the relative safety of the camp is underscored by lighter instrumentation, particularly a subtle accompaniment by what sounds to be an oboe and a violin to my pretender's ear. But it's not a peaceful piece of music, it's ethereal and otherworldly, communicating to the player that, though they may be safe now, it is only a temporary safety. 
a brief respite, and all too often the party's rest is broken by a surprise attack which can shatter what little recovery was made. So Stuart Chatwood is a composer I'm not familiar with. Looking at his biog, uh, although he was born in Lancashire over here in England, uh, he's a Canadian musician um, by uh, occupation, by, by geography. Um, and he's best known for uh, being in uh, a well-regarded uh, sort of alternative indie rock band uh, called The Tea Party. And he's only worked sporadically in video games over the years, going back to the 90s and uh, Road Rash 3D uh, for EA and, uh, and an NHL game. But then his work's been uh, pretty much exclusively with the Prince Persia uh, Sands of Time series, Warrior Within, Two Thrones yeah. and, that, and that run of games. Um, and, but now, yeah, uh, after several years, seven years since his last Prince of Persia work, which was uh, the last uh, Prince of Persia, the sort of, well, call it a reboot? I don't know. The, the, the free-running one. We covered it on Cade and Rinse anyway. This is his first um, video game work for seven years. And uh, and I thought, although I haven't played the game yet, I thought that was an absolutely lovely piece. So um, a good soundtrack can actually lure me to play a game more. Uh, that's one of the things I get from from doing Sound of Players. Sometimes I hear pieces uh, chosen by guests or, or uh, community members for games that I've been meaning to play and actually uh, uh, knowing that it's got a soundtrack that I'm going to enjoy definitely bumps it up the uh, the list of things that I want to play. Do you find that, Joe? Yeah, I just think music is such an important part to games and I, 
I always get uh, annoyed when I'm over someone's house and they have the volume down on a game. I'm like, no, what are you doing? You got to turn the volume up. You know, you can't experience games like this. <laughs> and it drives me mad. But uh, yeah, it's it's right up there with gameplay for me. Sound and music are, are so important to uh, a game, in, in my opinion, anyways. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's what uh, that's what this podcast was all about, uh, setting that up and, um, you know, getting that, that thought out there. Uh, as I say, we weren't the first. I mean, it sounds like you were before us uh, and there are certainly some other podcasts, but there's, I'd say there's not, there's not enough kind of credit given to video game musicians. It, it's really pleasing that there have been some, uh, on BBC Radio 6 Music over here, they've, they They've started to feature the odd um, segment or sequence of uh, video game soundtracks and Classic FM has featured some uh, OSTs as well. Um, but it's difficult to find a place where you would find like the, that proper eclectic mix because obviously Classic FM isn't going to play chip tunes, um, which is understandable. Uh, but this, uh, this platform allows us to, to really mix it up and, and go through the entire gamut. Yeah, you know, Sound of Play is a step in that direction. And I think ultimately, my dream anyway, is to have game music recognized on the scale as any other music and uh, revered and enjoyed in the same way. Uh, you know, if you can have rock songs on the radio or whatever else, why can't you have video game music on the radio too? You know, that's something I've always fought for and believed in so much. Um, and Sound of Play just does a, a fantastic job of uh, both naming the composers and uh, just supporting game music. And that's what drew me to it so much. Oh, thanks. Well, I wasn't fishing for compliments, but no, we'll, take them. <laughs> we'll take them now they're here. Uh, yeah, so listeners, uh, please remember to venture over to that forum that I mentioned, com slash forum. Sign up and uh, join in the conversation. It's a friendly and intelligent uh, place, as uh, as we hope a, a culture that we cultivate is a non-combative uh, but uh, highly intelligent and uh, erudite arena of video game discussion. Um, and... We also have a Twitter, uh, which is obviously less erudite because there's only 140 characters at a time, but uh, it's where you can find out what we're up to. Follow us at Kane and Rince. Uh, if you use the hashtag Sound of Play, uh, we'll know that it's meant for this show, but uh, we will take requests on there. If you can just give us a couple of lines about why you've chosen a piece, that would be cool. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, so you need to go and give it a like, facebook.com slash Kane and Rince. Uh, and we share news from around the gaming industry on there, as well as updates regarding our latest uh, podcasts and videos and all that sort of thing. Uh, keep your requests coming in. We need them. We want to include them on Sound of Play. If you enjoy this podcast, do leave us an iTunes review or rating or a review or rating wherever you can, really, anywhere online or whatever service you pick up your podcasts. If you've been enjoying this podcast for a long time uh, and you find it uh, an enjoyable boon in your life, uh, and you'd like to contribute to us continuing to be able to make it to the high standard that we try to, uh, we have a Patreon account, patreon.com slash You can donate a dollar or whatever, uh, a pound, a euro. We don't care. Uh, but uh, we're incredibly grateful for every donation that we receive, and it does help us keep on trucking. Oh, I want to thank, before we hear about his last track, that is, I want to thank uh Joe Tikas for joining me on this sound of play. Uh, have you got anything, any internet presence, anything out there that you do that you make that you want to draw people's attention to? Sure. So I have a uh, video game music cover band. It's called Codename Trigger Thumb. Uh, I fully wrote the story and the universe and everything involved with it. Uh, you can check out the first album, which came out back in 2013 at codenametriggerthumb.bandcamp.com. 
uh, and it tells the story of a cyborg that has all of the world's game music locked inside of her, and uh, it tells the story through music, through game songs, and uh, works very hard to uh, recognize the composers and do it in a respectful way. Um, and we are working on a second album right now. I also have uh, some acoustic music that I work on on the side. I uh, recently released a George Sanger tribute album where wow. all proceeds uh, yeah, <laughs> all proceeds uh, go directly to the composer, which I'm not sure has ever been done before. And I'm really, I'm really proud of that. Um, you can check that out at gamerjoe.bandcamp.com. And uh, lastly, every Monday, I review something new, whether it be a movie or a game, over at youtube.com slash joetkaz. T as in tiger, K-A, B as in cat, Z as in zebra. So uh, be sure to keep in touch. Wow, that's a lot of cool stuff. I had yeah. no idea you were so involved in so many excellent projects. Um, and yeah, how many times have you had to spell out your surname in your life? <laughs> Too many to count. Yeah. Right. So to close this show, uh, we've got something from uh, when Konami made made us all happy, the era from the 80s to the 90s <laughs> and even through to the 2000s when a Konami, the Konami label on a box on an arcade game on a title screen was something that filled you with joy. And particularly, I think in this era, the mid 90s, um, they were making some really lovely music in the early CD uh, sort of days. I'm thinking of Vandal Hearts, I'm thinking of Castlevania Symphony of the Night, and this game that you brought us a track from, uh, from Suikoden. That's right. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Suikoden's been featured on Caden Rinse. I don't think it has, no, no. Well, I definitely would love to uh, see that at some point, but uh, the twist with Suikoden... Uh, from other JRPGs, is it's 108 stars of destiny in every game. That's the subtitle uh, of the original Japanese game, isn't it? I think it's called Genso Suikoden, and then, yeah, 108 stars of destiny. Yeah, yeah and, and that basically means uh, many of the recruitable characters are optional, or they require a trick to add to your party. And uh, if you aren't familiar with Suikoden, you generally get a home base of some sort at some point in the game, which is the place where your team prepares and plans out battles. Um, and as you get more stars, the castle or wherever the base is in that particular game continues to grow and expand with whatever their abilities are. Uh, so you might get someone that uh, runs baths, for example, and you'll have baths in the castle now where you can take a bath and rest and it will heal your party. Or you might have a cook and they can cook. And uh, it was cool because you didn't necessarily have to do it, but it, all the characters had a personality to them and finding them all was really rewarding. Uh, it would also change the ending, at least in the first game. Uh, you'd get the better ending for uh, actually getting all 108 stars. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did have this back in the day. It was more played by my girlfriend of the time. Um, and I remember, because uh, this was a slightly odd era, because obviously uh, developers had started work on games for the Super Nintendo, or they were used to working on, on 16-bit machines. And then the PlayStation came along, and obviously there was a, an initial flurry of, of dazzling polygons in Ridge Racer and Tekken and things like this. But then you would get these... Uh, these um, 2D kind of sprite-based releases, and Sony was notoriously um, sort of against publishing them or, or promoting them because mm -hmm. they felt that it would actually hold hold the uh, the PS1 back. But fortunately, some you know some made it through. Whether I guess they just ones that they decided would would uh, do all right for them. But uh, and this was one of those because it looks very much like a, a, pr a previous generation game. And I believe you can't even walk diagonally in Suikoden, can you? It's like four four 
directions of movement yeah up down left right that's pretty much it <laughs> yeah and yet there's all this depth to it and happily you can still buy a uh, sweet code n and two and three which was a ps2 game but the first two uh, are available to download on psn and you can play them on vita which is obviously a lovely way to to you know while away a few hundred hours uh of happy old school RPG. Yeah, and two was especially a big deal because it was so expensive to get it for the longest time. So once that came to PSN, people were ecstatic about that. Yeah, but Vandal Hearts still not there. And I no, Vandal Hearts was great too. I loved Vandal Hearts so much. Yeah, I don't know why. And then they uh, Konami released an absolute abomination of a of a downloadable game. It was uh, terrible. It was yeah. really bad. It was yeah, and it it was called Vandal Hearts, but the art was offensive to my eyes. It was, <laughs> it was just such a disaster. Fortunately, loads of other people have made um, fantastic turn-based strategy games um, since then. But Vandal Hearts had a real magic to it. But we're not talking Vandal Hearts. We're talking Sweet Good End. So uh, what is this piece that we're going to close the show with, Eternal Empire? And yeah. uh, what made you pick it? Just because it's awesome. <laughs> uh, well, no, it's, uh, it's kind of in theme with the rest of the game. It gives you the, the feelings of war, loss, and love. And... Um, it just kind of, kind of encompasses everything that made Suikoden such a special series. Uh, and I think it's one of those JRPG series where it kind of stays good, whereas you don't have these controversial games. I guess Suikoden 4 was kind of eh for people, but on the, on the whole, people like Suikoden. And uh, it was a, a good series uh, that doesn't have to have those uh, you know, online battles about, well, this one wasn't good and we've got to put it in a list. You know, it can, it can kind of be recognized as just all being enjoyable. Um, and Eternal Empire is just a, kind of gives you the feel of every Suikoden game. Uh, just war, battle, and love. All right. Well, we'll close the show with it. Thanks again for joining me, Joe, from all the way over there in the USA. Which bit? I, I'm in New England. So um, I'm in the small state of Connecticut here in North America. Okay. One day I plan to tour the USA and learn what these places are actually like. <laughs> but until then, uh, we'll stay in touch, definitely, because it sounds like you've got loads of fantastic uh, irons in the fire. And, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me. And Thank you. It was, re it was really an honor after listening to you for so <laughs> long now. <laughs> oh, uh, shucks. Right, let's hear it. Eternal Empire by, well, any one of Mickey Chang, Tappy who you've heard of, Taniguchi, uh, Mayoko, Kageshita, Hiroshi, Tamawari. Uh, and we'll see you next time on Sound of Play.